0: Okay, the last time we were together, we were in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, and Samuel was being called from sleep to an encounter with God, um, and actually it, it occurs, uh, god this encounter with God inc- occurs twice in Shiloh as part of a, a way to call Samuel out of the, the moral morass that was uh, caused by uh, Eli the high priest and his two deviant sons, and... Um, that didn't bother God at all. He just reaches down into Shiloh in the middle of this and he pulls up his servant, and gets him confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. So today we want to look at the next four chapters. I mean, this is narrative, Old Testament narrative. Okay, so you can follow in your text. You can close your eyes uh, and listen. You can close your eyes and go to sleep. That's okay too. <laughs> okay. So the opening line in chapter four creates reading and and significant interpretation problems. The opening line, it reads like this. It says, this is the word of Samuel, uh, thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, I think that's misplaced in scripture because the original Hebrew manuscripts didn't divide it into verses, paragraphs, and chapters. That was an editor. That was a translator. And I think editors and translators put this line in the wrong place. I think it fits above in verse 21 of chapter 3, because the context there says, From Dan to Beersheba, Israel knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet. And it would be followed by this reading then that says, Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, if you set this back into chapter 3, here's the deal. Uh, That means that all Israel is going to start fighting this battle against the Philistines without any word from the Lord and without ever consulting with the prophet Samuel. Now, there's not a whiff, there's not a sniff that God had anything to do with what happens in chapter 4. This is Israel on their own hook. Okay, Israel goes down to fight the Philistines. Now, the Philistines are a warlike people that they think came out of the Aegean Sea and fought their way out through islands and so on. There's ancient records that they fought the Egyptian naval forces. But ultimately, they settle on the coast of what we know today to be the Gaza Strip. It's right on the water in southwestern Israel. And and when they traveled there, they were taking up new lands. But they brought their ancient ways with them. They brought their gods with them. And they created... Five walled cities in this strip of land up by the ocean. And they were ruled by five lords of the Philistines. So they know Israel's coming to get them, so they line up, they pour out of their five citadel cities, and they go to face Israel. The first scrum, if you will, the first, the first of the battles is terrible for Israel. 4,000 Israelites die. And they sort of stagger back into their lines and they're looking at each other. And the elders of the people of Israel, it doesn't say who they were, they're not identified. But just says the elders say, um, <coughs> why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Well, I have two or three, three reasons why I think that came to pass, but, so we're going to let that lie. Okay? Then they say let us take for ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord that, is, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. Okay, now granted that in Hebrew, you can translate the word it or the word he out of the same little Hebrew squiggle. Okay? But if you go with he, that means it's third person, plural, you know, and it's a pronoun. But that brings God right down to the level of everybody else so he's yeah he's the man upstairs yeah he's the guy who lives in that box over there and he works for me all right so we have a problem there with how they handled this uh you know i'm working out of my own manuscript here i don't know the verse so someone can shout it out okay okay Okay, they're getting ready. To, they send off to Shiloh. Okay? And they the people, word the people, bring the ark from Shiloh. And here comes Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli. They come traipsing alongside. Now note that the Levites were the only ones who were authorized, dedicated, to carry the ark. And they did it with a pole and loop, a pole and ring system so that so the um, Levites never touched the ark. And they made sure that the ark was completely covered. So they never saw the ark when it moved. Okay, here you got, but the people go up to Shiloh and they bring it back. It's on full display. And they bring it into the camp. And there is a mighty shout when the ark of the Lord appears because Israel is now convinced our power source is here. Our tactical nuclear advantage is on site. We are going to win this big time. Okay, now that mighty shout echoes across to wherever the Philistines are arrayed, and it rocks them because they realize, whoa, the gods of Israel are in the other camp. And I use that word intentionally, gods, because they use the word Elohim, and it's a plural. Now, they knew about Elohim because 400 years before, this Elohim had been the one who had loosed the plagues on the Egyptians prior to the exodus. But in the mind of the storytellers and in the mind of the Philistines, every one of those plagues was a different god. So they just saw Israel just like they were. They had a pantheon of gods that they worshipped. So obviously Israel must have a whole bunch of other gods that they worshipped too. But now they're going to go face to face and fight against this Elohim in battle. They're terrified. Okay, they're shaking. But they rally. And they suck up their fear, and they go out, and they savage Israel. 30,000 more soldiers die. It's, it's the worst possible outcome for what Israel had in mind. Okay, And among the dead are Hophni and Phinehas, fulfilling the prophetic word through Samuel and the, and the unnamed prophet, who brought it to Eli and said, your two sons are going to die on the same day. The Ark of God was seized, and though the text doesn't say so, it is believed that when Israel turned and ran, they ran uphill to Shiloh, and right behind them come the Philistines, and the Philistines may not have caught Israel, but they ran right through Shiloh and burned it to the ground. The tabernacle went up in smoke. and and if you go back and you want to do a little archaeology, on that site approximately, we don't know exactly, but approximately, there's there's an ash layer of of pottery pieces and tools and ash and charcoal that date to about 1050 B.C. And it's large. And so it makes sense that that, um, Shiloh disappears because never again does Israel ever gather to Shiloh and and the tabernacle is never mentioned again. It's gone. The text picks up the events just as the battlefront collapses. You know, and one of the guys in the back, named Ben, because he's a Benjamite, okay? (laughs) He he turns and he runs. And he runs for all he has to get back uphill. He's covered with ash, he covers himself with ashes, and he's torn his clothes in grief, and he's gasping his way into Shiloh, and there sits Eli, the high priest. He's now ninety-eight years old, he's blind, and he's obese. And, and he hears the runner coming, and says, "Oh, what's the news from the battle?" And the guy says, "There's been a horrific loss. Okay. There's great slaughter. Israel has fled. Your two sons are dead, and the Ark of God has been taken by the Philistines." At the mention of the Ark of God taken away, Eli collapses backwards. He just—he's out. He's—he's. He's, out and he rolls backwards and his heavy body drives his neck into the ground and he dies. Word also reaches Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, and she is very, very pregnant. And when she hears that she's a widow, she's plunged into, into into wild grief and wails and it starts the onset of childbirth. Now baby boy is born and she names the boy Ichabod. It means the glory has departed from Israel. Her husband is dead. And he was priest. Her father-in-law was the high priest. And he's dead. And my brother-in-law, he's dead too. And then she succumbs to blood loss. She's dead as well. Meanwhile, the Philistines have taken the Ark of God to display it in the temple of their god Dagon in one of the walled cities called Ashdod. Now Dagon was, was one of their primary gods. He was the god of the, of the uh, grain harvest. And so from the waist down, as an idol, as a standing symbol, from the waist down, it's a fish. From the waist up, it's a man. Okay? And obviously, to the Philistines, Dagon has won the battle. He's the victor, and to him go the spoils of the gold box set on display in the temple of Dagon. And what follows is a humorous account. We say humorous. I'm sure it was terrifying, but it was humorous. (laughs) Okay, where the first morning, after placing the box of the covenant sort of at the feet of Dagon, the priests come in and Dagon is face down, flat on his face, in front of the Ark of the Covenant. So they have to hustle around and get this idol back up in place. And it says literally, they, they had to put him back in his place. The second morning, they walk in and Dagon is face down, only this time, his head and his hands have been severed. So this idol is broken in pieces. This speaks about what happened in there as a military execution. You see, heads were taken so that you could walk around with this gory trophy to say, such and such a king is really dead. This leader is dead. And then hands were removed as part of the post-battle metrics. There are ancient accounts of, of stele or monuments erected by the Egyptians to say, we won the battle. And it's surrounded by a mountain of hands. Ancient ancient stuff, okay? And here lies Dagon face down before the Lord. Then a plague breaks out in Ashdod and it starts around the temple complex and it goes all the way to the walls and then out jumps the walls and goes to the villages around Ashdod. The Philistines are covered with tumors or hemorrhoids. Now, the Hebrew word can be translated both ways. We know the latter in this culture, and they make all kinds of preparation materials to help you. But that's, these are different. They're on the outside of the body, and they're bleeding, and it's awful. Okay, so they're being decimated by this awful plague that has come upon them. And the Lord of the Philistines, uh, of the Philistines who runs Ashdod says, Get it out of here. Take it down the road. Let's send it to Gath. And so they move the Ark of the Covenant to the next walled city, and the plague blows up in Gath. And very quickly, the leader in Gath says, uh-uh, enough of this, and they move it on to Ekron. Okay. And the hand of the Lord was heavy on that city as well. In desperation, the witches, the warlocks, the diviners, the, the priests of the Philistines conclude that the Ark must go back to where it came from. But it has to go back in a certain way. It has to go back in a new wood cart built from scratch. We're not going to use any old cart. This is a new one, shiny new. It says Chevy on the back. Okay, And it has to be pulled by two cows in yoke. They've, they've never done this. These cows have never been in yoke. And their new calves are pinned up behind them. And then thirdly, they obviously knew that there was a trespass offering that had to go with this. They have, They have really put their foot in it. <coughs> And they know that uh, there's a guilt offering has to go because they've angered this God in the box, this Elohim. They don't know what to do with him. <clears throat> so they instruct each of the five lords of the Philistines from the five principal cities and the villages around them. Okay, those lords of the, Phil- uh, the Philistines have to produce a golden hemorrhoid or a golden tumor. There's a sense of humor. Okay, okay. and offer it as part of this of this uh, trespass offering, and then all the villages, you know, they got five lords of the Philistines, that's five golden tumors, okay? And then every village, and all the people were to contribute golden mice because they knew that somehow they defended this God in the box, and they were suffering plague after plague, death after death. Their bodies were ruined by the the tumors, and their lands were overrun by mice. Each of those five lords the of the Philistines, anti so to all the other people. So the diviners and the priests here have stacked the deck against, the, against Elohim. They have set this up as an impossibility. Never, never would a, a cow, having just given birth to its calf, never would it walk away and leave the calf behind. Okay? But if they did, if the cows walk away, then they would know for certainty that it was not just some virulent disease that crept in and swept through their cities. It was indeed the judgment of God Almighty. It took the Philistines seven months to get to this point. Not fast. Okay? Okay, but they had to learn their lesson that Elohim was not to be set aside, not to be set up to serve their god Dagon, and not to be touched and handled as a war prize. The lords of the Philistine line up and they follow this new cart out the gate of Ekron as the cows bellow their way up the road and they go 20 miles straight ahead from the lands of the Philistines across the border into the lands around Beth Shemesh and when they get there the lords of the Philistines know this was God, this wasn't, this wasn't natural stuff and they turn and head back across the border Beth Shemesh was a walled city that was in on in the lands that had been given to Naphtali, one of the tribes of Israel, in the division of the lands after the wars of Canaan. And Naphtali never was able to fight through the the walled city. They just closed the doors and went, you can't come in here. You know, your mother smells of elderberries, you know, <laughs> etc. Whatever. It's the classic sort of lines. Okay, Naphtali had to give up. They couldn't win the battle, so they they gathered up all the Canaanite people that they could find loose and put them to forced labor and settled in to live next to this walled city and its influence. Also, there was a a community of, of priests and Levites that moved in and settled in Beth Shemesh. And then 400 years passes. Time of the judges. 400 years go by. Okay. And Beth Shemesh is now on the border. They're on the frontier. They're used to hearing marching feet. They're used to being overrun or held in subjection by the Philistines. It was, it was an edgy place to live. Okay, the, the, the wheat harvest that year would have come in May. It was hot. The sun was out. And here, coming up the road, are, is this cart being pulled by two bellowing, Cows who need to be milked. Okay, And in the cart is the Ark of the Covenant of God. Cart is greeted with a celebration. The people come, they lift the, the, the Ark of the Covenant out, put it on a big rock, and they surround it with all the golden tumors and golden mice. They take the cart, they reduce it to kindling, they slaughter the cows, they build a, a, an altar and create a, a bird offering of the cows. But in the celebration... Some of the folks get curious. They crawl up on the rock and they lift the lid on the Ark of the Covenant to look in. And the Lord gets angry. Okay. The text says, the Lord struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh. This is a nearly untranslatable text in Hebrew. Uh, There are all kinds of speculations and I'm just going to give you a few of them. Okay. Some say that it was, if you just change one word, Excuse me. One letter and one word. It isn't men that are slaughtered; it's bulls that are slaughtered. Okay, and that was to you know offer some sort of sacrifice for for the fact that God was angry. Okay, some place other other people say no. It was seventy men who were killed, and some say fifty thousand and seventy men were killed. <clears throat> uh, that they some say that the bulls were killed to make right the wrongs of sacrificing the female cows, because they never sacrificed any female. Animal on the altar at all, and it goes on it goes on and on and on and on, okay This is what people write their doctoral dissertations on. it's like, oh my, okay, my take here is that just like you you have this account of of the ark being hauled off and treated as a, just as a, as a symbol, um, it's a war trophy, and, and Israel is being subjected to the Philistines. Um, and you're tr- there's basically saying, our God beat the God of Israel, and we're subjecting the God of Israel to worship, be worshiped here next to Dagon. Okay. Here you've got ignorant and curious Israelites that just get up and defile the ark and the anger of the Lord, resulting in a great number of them being slain. Don't know how many, but it was bad. Okay? The shocked men of Bethshemas say. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up from us? Now in vernacular, that says, what was that all about? You know, how can we do that? How can we stand before God? And where do we send this terrifying symbol of the Lord God? Okay, they further display their lack of understanding and fear. And then, standing in the midst... As they shake in their handles, is little Ralphie, and Ralphie says, "Let's get, let's, let's send the box up the road to Kiriath off Jerem, we don't like those guys anyway. We'll just won't tell them how many of us died." <laughs> no, that's not what the text says. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, now if you recall, the text says the pattern is the same. Okay. It's the same. First it went to Ashdod, and then it went from Ashdod to Gath, and it went from Gath to Ekron, and then it went from Ekron to Beth Shemesh. And death is trailing along behind it, and it arrives in Beth Shemesh, and they're going, we don't know what to do, so let's get rid of it over there. So they send a message. The men come down from kiriath Jerem, eight miles east up the road, and they take the Ark of God home with them, and they install it in the house of Abinadab, and they dedicate his son, Eleazar, He's consecrated and he's set apart in the care and the keeping of the Ark of God. And somehow they got it right. Okay? There was honor and there was caution and there was a due fear of and worship of God. Twenty years pass. That golden box is still there in here. tomb. Twenty years, a generation. Israel is subjugated to the Philistines and life is the pits. Finally, in verse 2 of chapter 7, it says that all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. You know, they cried out, they grieved. They were gripped with sorrow and grief and, and their own, just awareness, their own, their own uh, conviction. But they were going hard after the Lord. <clears throat> A whole generation had passed. And the, and the consequences of the leadership of Eli and his two deviant sons had bent and, and, yeah, the nation. There's bitter fruit all over the place. And then Samuel speaks. Now, where has he been for 20 years? Okay? If not, there's no mention. For 20 years, what's Samuel been doing? So I think he's been circuit writing. I think he goes from Ramah to Mizpah to Bethel, down to the bottom or to Gilgal, where Israel crossed the river to, into the promised land and then back up past Jerusalem, back to Ramah. And, and as he does that, he's been having face time with the faithful. He has been re- reminding people, the Lord is God. Don't give up. He's been pondering God's ways. He's been growing in wisdom and knowledge of, of the Lord of Israel. All this while, while, while Israel has, is being thrashed. And he kept listening for the Lord, but the Lord was silent. Nevertheless, Samuel was God's man. He waited 20 years to hear and to speak out God's words. So at verse 3 of chapter 7, it says that Samuel knows what to do. And he spoke to all the house of Israel. So he sent the message, this, this was passed word of mouth you know, or perhaps on a paper document or papyrus. Or something. It went to the whole house of Israel, north, south, east, west. Everybody got the message. And he spoke to all the house of Israel, and they were ready to listen. Samuel lays out a path of repentance, a way to return to God Most High. And the first part is a house cleansing. All the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth were to be removed and destroyed. That means all the teraphim. Those are the little house gods, the little thing you slide in your pocket or you wear on an amulet. It's a good, you know, the good luck charm. This is going to protect me when I go out in the sand. Right? I forgot my hat and my sunscreen. Okay? But the, all these little, these little teraphim, the house gods, the good luck charms, the clay and metal symbols both worn and put on the shelf, those that were rubbed and prayed to in bad times, all the statues that were sacrificed to, all the clay godlings, all the symbols of protection, fertility, and healing that Israel had accreted to itself from the surrounding Canaanites. So it says their worship and their lifestyle was identical to their neighbors. And then they were to remove the Taroth. This is a female goddess fertility goddess that was that was worshipped in Sidon. Sidon is on the what today is Lebanon. It's the north coast way is significantly north of Israel at this point. Okay? But it was imported. This worship was imported and brought in at least twice that I know of in the history of Israel and it had become so awful and so twisted and so deviant and horrific that ancient Hebrew manuscripts refer to it as the horror. It was so icky <laughs> that, you know, Israel wanted no, you know, that God wanted nothing to do with his people. And Samuel said to them, away with them, all of them and to all the nation. So in the year 2000, my two sons and I we in Argentina, and we were doing street ministry in the middle of a street ministry. We were seeing revival. We were seeing you know, awakening. People were coming to Jesus on the streets. And it was amazing because we'd never seen that in North America. And in one of the, one of the churches in the La Plata metrope- metroplex, it had its own FM broadcast station, which is very common apparently among churches in Latin America. They get their own FM station, and they, they can cover the city. So, they invited Dr. Ed Silvoso from Harvest Evangelism, who we were part of the international team with him, to come and broadcast a message out to the members of the family, uh, the church family, and anybody else who wanted to tune in at that time on the FM radio. <clears throat> After leading fathers and mothers over the radio to repent and return to God, Dr. Ed led them in a house cleansing exercise. First, they had to dedicate their marriage, and their family to the Lord. Second, they had to dedicate their house to the Lord. And then he he says very gently but firmly, he asked them to go and pick up any photos, any items of veneration, of worship, of dedication to any other spiritual source that they had in their their families, in their houses. Could be photos, idols, candles, tarot cards, any santeria, umbanda, or macumba items, any books, any spiritual souvenirs from pilgrimage to any of those sites. And they were to take all those items out of their house and crush them and then burn them. It's a symbolic termination of any false worship and demonic influence. And it was powerful because all over the city you could see columns of smoke rising from burned barrels and barbecues in the backyard. And you could hear the sound of people crying out for freedom from bondage to those dark things. All right, back to verse 3. The second item that, that Samuel lays out before the people of Israel, he says, You guys are all to direct your hearts to the Lord. Mind, soul, body, strength. All of you. All of you. He gets all of you. Third, Samuel tells all Israel to serve the Lord God only. <clears throat> that must have rocked the nation because a generation's passed without Shiloh, without the temple, without any place to visibly gather to worship and to sacrifice to God. A generation's passed without any open proclamation about who God is. And the Philistines were hovering. You know, any kind of gathering that Israel had probably would have been put down hard. Nevertheless, all Israel removed the idols and symbols of false worship and demonic strongholds, and they served God alone. Now, the service of God is not an ethereal thing, it's not a mind thing. It's like, oh, I'm just going to worship you, I'm going to serve you, Lord. I want to, I just don't. No, it, it was very practical. Okay? New covenant marriages, new godly parenting, transformation in the marketplace, debts were forgiven in the name of the Lord, loans were made in the name of the Lord, slaves were freed, people forgave each other, restitution was made, foreigners were treated with justice and welcome, and the poor and needy were fed, cared for, on and on. So Israel was starting over. They began to live like the covenant people God had called them to be. And then, and then Samuel steps over the line in the sand, and he calls all Israel to come up to Mizpah so that he can pray to the Lord for them. Mizpah is on the Israeli crest. It's uh, five miles north of Jerusalem on this sort of spine, this crest of mountains that runs right up the middle of the land of Israel. It's one of the high points in the land. And he set a day, and, and thousands upon thousands it was a it was a multi-generational multi-tribal mob that walked and rode up to Mizpah the verse the text of verse 6 uh, verse 6 says that that day the people operate word the people poured out water they drew water and poured it out before the lord this is a one off this never happens again in scriptures okay this libation, this pouring out an offering to the Lord of water was a symbol, saying to him, we need you more than life-giving water in the natural. And then they sat down and fasted, okay? and saying again, symbolically, we need you more than any natural food that would sustain us. And then with one voice, they said, we have sinned against the Lord. Israel owned its sins, it owned its, its guilt, and with one voice confessed it before the Lord. And then Samuel was free to step in and judge Israel. So he went to settle disputes, to lead people in forgiveness of one another, to heal generational grudges, to restore relationships between men and women, between men and men, between men and God. Now, Israel was a land in subjugation to the Philistines, and word got back quickly to the spy masters that Israel, all Israel, had gathered up to Mizpah. So the five lords of the Philistines launch from five walled cities and they create this massive army that is setting up to run up the hill all the way from the sea to the spine of Israel and put Israel down one more time. The text says the people heard about this. Now, whether that was a report that came running, came running in, it was passed you know, mouth-to-mouth mouth and ear-to-ear, ear, you know, whether it was a shouted, we don't know. Maybe they heard an advancing army, the tramp of iron-shod feet, the, the clash of swords on shields, the sound of, of the Philistines praising Dagon and cursing Israel and cursing the God. Of Israel. And at that point, there are the chills that start running through the crowd at, at Mizpah. It's the chill that says, we're going to die. But this time, Israel turns to the Lord. They don't turn to the golden box. Okay? They don't say, oh, we've got to get to Kariath Jerem and get that box back. Verse 8 says that Israel did not dither. They didn't wring their hands. They did not flee. They didn't grumble and say, So where is God now? They said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So what's the first order of battle? Worship. You build an altar. Samuel built an altar. And he took a suckling lamb... And made of it a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Now, burnt offerings were pretty central to the worship of Yahweh in Israel. But here, it's a Levite who's offering a whole burnt offering on an altar. Okay? Not a priest. It's a Levite. Okay? And Samuel offers up the lamb on behalf of the people who are confessing their sins before God. And the word whole in whole burnt offering speaks of the fact that the animal was not. Butchered up, and pieces were not arrayed over the top of this. It was a whole-bodied animal. And second, that word whole is rooted to the word shalom. Everything that God would have to say to you about peace. Nothing missing, nothing lacking, nothing broken. And here, that whole burnt offering is one that is designed to restore the people of God to Yahweh shalom. And he gives them his peace. So this is more than a thousand years before the death of Christ on a cross as the Lamb of God. And yet, here's the picture. The sacrifice gathered up the people of God and the sins of the people, but the sacrifice of a lamb, that made them all whole again. This wasn't a pre-battle ritual. If I do this, then God has to do that. This was lay it down before the Lord first. And so for the first time in a generation, Israel could stand and lift its face and lift its voice and praise God in the right way, and they were able to stand before a holy God. The Philistines had gathered close in battle formation in a pre-battle frenzy. You know, They, they were just ready to tear into this gathering of men, women, and children. Then Samuel lifts up his voice to the Lord on behalf of all of Israel. And the Lord answered him. Hadn't happened in 20 years. Okay? Samuel heard from God. Now, do you know what I think the Lord said to Samuel? I think he said, Samuel, Samuel, duck, get down, cover your ears. Because the next word is the Lord thundered with a great thunder, literally with a great voice against the Philistines, and it was so loud it knocked people over, it put them in disarray, it flattened the army, and they would get back to their feet, and the Lord's thunder would crush them again, and they were terrified, and they finally staggered to their feet and started running. the the arms the armed people in Israel they broke and they went after them and they ran them down and they slaughtered them all the way down the hill, back to the coastal plain. For the rest of Samuel's life, the Philistines stayed inside their borders. And all the lands that they'd lost to the Philistines, that was restored to them. And where does Samuel go next? Back on the circuit. Ramah, Mizpah, Bethel, Gilgal. Judging the people, praying with the people, He helped settle arguments, helped helped justice to be established by the word of the Lord, to move families to forgive one another, and be the voice of the Lord to those who needed the mind of God. Now, he had a family. So when he's back in Ramah, there was an altar that he built outside of his dwelling, and he would sacrifice on that altar for his family and for all of Israel. All right, Ford's family, let's update this. And since you're not the only ones hearing this, you know, uh, you're going to get a modified version of this in a second. But there's some questions here that I want you to embrace and, uh, and figure out how... They're not, easy. They're not easy questions. All right? So here we go. How can we stand before a holy God? What in our culture turns our heads and our hearts away from God himself? What causes God to slide down the priority list of life so that we just aren't paying attention to him anymore. We don't listen to him. What strongholds still get passed down generationally to keep our eyes off God and his ways? What worldly value systems hold members of the body of Christ captive? How do we serve the Lord only now? What part of churchianity withers us leaves us dry and aching for God as we do rote liturgy or predictable church. And family, what is the way back to intimacy with God? That as we do it, are we, are we prepared to model that so others see it? And I realize, as I said, these are easy and they're not short. Okay, But I believe they have to be wrestled with so that our nation and our region and our state and the Bay Area, and the city we live in, and our families, and our own hearts. How, how do we all come back into right standing before a holy God? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, there's, there's um, a great uh, lesson here in four chapters of just narrative. And we ask, Lord, that uh, you would uh, prod us, you would uh, find your way into our hearts. We welcome you, Lord. We open as much as we know how, but you keep coming. Keep coming, Holy Spirit. And we ask you, Lord, to uh, work with, with what we heard from the scriptures and work with the questions so that we are like Samuel. In Jesus' name, amen.